bullseye of our faith. There are so many important things that is in the Word of God. There are so many important things that we can get passionate about. But at the center of our faith is what we are celebrating this weekend, the life and then the death today and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to talk about three meals that's changed history. Three meals that changed history. And I'm so sorry to get you thinking about what's happening at lunch later on already. And I know that some of you are looking forward to maybe a good lamb or maybe you're having toasted sandwiches, but you can still think about the meals that we're talking about today. You know this about me. I love my food. I consider myself a little bit of a hobby foodie. And so maybe as I talk about meals that have changed your life, some meals come to your mind. Maybe you can think about some of those meals where you brought out your inner master chef and you just know that was the day that you nailed it and you can see it on the faces of your guests. Today happens to be the birthday of one of my sons and one of the things that we like to do on their birthdays is to say, boy, whatever you want for lunch or dinner, whatever the main meal is of the day, it's your choice. We can have it. And today, we're not doing a very traditional Easter Friday, but we are having his favorite meal for his day. I know recently, my wife and I, we celebrated our 15-year marriage anniversary, and uh, we decided to go out and have a meal to eat. And we weren't feeling that great, and so we managed to get our coughing and our spluttering. You know, you can't do that in public anymore. So uh, we managed to keep that under wraps. And we found a restaurant that we just found literally that day, and we did have an unforgettable meal. So if you want some tips, come and speak to us afterwards. But either way, we might describe these meals as memorable, as absolutely delicious. But I don't know if any of those meals truly changed the world. And today I want to talk about three meals that changed the world. So let's talk about the first meal. And uh, if you've been journeying with us, you would know that what we're doing is we're looking at the Exodus story and how it connects to the Easter story. So if you have your Bibles here, turn with me to Exodus chapter 11. And we're going to be reading a number of verses in chapter 11 and chapter 12. But the reason why we're looking at the Exodus story to help us understand the Easter story is because that's what the Bible writers do. They say that, yes, in this story, this was a story about a powerful, mighty God, His powerful acts of freedom, releasing His people from slavery and oppression into freedom. But the New Testament writers use exactly the same language for the story of the cross. They're saying that this is the great and mighty act of God confronting evil and releasing His people from slavery into freedom. And so there are all these dots that the Bible writers connect between this story and this story. And that is why we're allowing the story of Exodus to help us worship God this Easter weekend. And so in case you haven't been journeying with us or in case the Exodus story is a little bit fuzzy because it's been a long time since you watched any of the movies, let's just get on the same page. And so last week we saw how God's people were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Think about that. Think about where our world's history was 400 years ago. And they were crying out to God to save them. 
And towards the end, Pharaoh turned up the heat. He took out their anger on these slaves, beating them and treating them unjustly and with oppression. Part of the problem for Pharaoh was that there were so many Israelites that he realized that they were a threat to his own people. And so what he decided to do to this immigrant population was try and cull the population. And the way he did that was, the long and the short of it is, he took out an entire generation of Hebrew baby boys in an effort to stop them multiplying. And, and that forms such an important part of the backdrop as to why God was doing what he was doing in this time. But then God raises up Moses to be his representative, to go and confront in the name of God, the name of these people, to go and confront evil, to go and confront Pharaoh and say, let my people go. But Pharaoh refused. And so plague after plague, Blow after blow, strike after strike, God systematically confronts Pharaoh, confronts the religious oppressive system of Egypt, confronts even the, the spiritual realities behind this human evil. And after nine plagues, we've got a weakened Egypt, a weakened Pharaoh, and he's like a beaten dog in a corner because though he's weak, he stubbornly refuses to give in. And so we ended Palm Sunday having looked at the nine plagues. Today we're going to look at the 10th strike, the 10th plague where God says, I'm going to bring this plague and after this plague, Pharaoh will let my people go. And that brings us to Exodus chapter 11, and we're going to read together Exodus 11 verses 4 to 8. And so Moses says to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. And, <coughs> excuse me. And then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, go, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will leave. And then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. This is one of those mic drop moments because we know that something big is about to go down. This is no more negotiation, no more false promises from Pharaoh's part, no more pleading. This was to be the final strike against all this human and spiritual evil. And God to show who is in fact charge of this world. Now, for those of us who grew up in the church, we hear the story and it sounds familiar. But I want you to imagine hearing the story for the first time and to maybe be a little bit offended by this. Why? Why this plague? 
Why go to such extremes? Why literally, why couldn't the leaders sit down and talk it out? Why bring about the death of the firstborn? Now remember, I highlighted earlier today, but also we spoke about this on Sunday, that that moment, I never realized how important it was to the story. That moment when Pharaoh said, take all of these Hebrew boys, kill them and throw their bodies into the Nile. Think about what that did to Israel. And think about what that did to the God of Israel. As the Nile River was literally flooded with death. That is one of the reasons why the first plague, where the Nile River was a river of death to the Israelites, became a river of death to the Egyptians. And because Pharaoh killed all of these baby boys, this is one of the reasons why God is turning Pharaoh's evil back onto him. But not only was this inexplicable thing done, in Exodus chapter 4, God calls Israel, the whole nation of Israel, my firstborn son. I hope some of you are thinking about Jesus, who is the firstborn of God. His connection to being Israel. But not only did Pharaoh take out a generation of baby boys, but God is saying, listen, by oppressing my people for generations and treating them like animals and slaves, you are doing that to my firstborn son. Now, moms and dads, I wanted you to think about what would get stirred up in you if you found out that someone had taken your firstborn son captive and were mistreating them and, and torturing them. And so this plague is not God having lost his cool. This is a measured response to the evil of Pharaoh and to the evil of Egypt. After God being patient with Egypt, Patience with Pharaoh, multiple generations of patience, multiple plagues as an opportunity for Pharaoh to turn around. And so, yes, God does bring in this act of judgment against all that Pharaoh had done to the people of Israel and God's firstborn. We read about what happens in the story now in Exodus chapter 12. And I'm going to read a lot of the passage. And if it's familiar to you, you might want to just close your eyes. This is a, a, a story. And maybe you want to picture this in your mind's eye. From verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. This is a detail that I had often missed. This idea that time was starting again for Israel. This was going to be a rebirth of Israel. This was going to be a new life and a new future for Israel starting now. And their calendar is still according to what happened on this day. Verse 3. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household, if any household is too small for a whole lamb, 
They must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person needs to eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males, in other words, in their height of perfection, without defects. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, the day that Jews and Christians still celebrate Passover, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left until morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand. In other words, be ready. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgments on all the gods of Egypt, says God confronts spiritual and human evil here. The blood will be a sign for you in the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And this is what has become known as the Passover meal. God passes over his people. If you've got some Jewish or Hebrew friends, you might have heard the word Pesach, which is the Hebrew word for God passing over. Interesting fact, the word Pesach is a verb from the noun Pasach, which means to protect. And so by God passing over His people, it is an act of protecting His people. Now, I know this sounds so severe and we've spoken about that. And while God is perfectly just in this action of judgment against Pharaoh and Egypt. I wanted to show you a detail that I'd never seen before. And this is why we need other people who've walked along the road and have dug deeper than we have to maybe show us some of these things. But I want to show you that even in the severe acts of judgment, how merciful God was, not only to His people, but do you know that this offer was made available to the Egyptians too? We read it later in the book of Exodus, but as the story is retold in the book of Numbers, Numbers 9 verses 14, about this first Passover meal, it says an alien that's got nothing to do with UFOs, but someone who is not an Israelite, an alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must do so in accordance with its rules and regulations. You must have the same regulations for the alien and the native born. In other words, God's mercy had nothing to do with what kind of blood ran through your veins. God's mercy had nothing to do with how worthy you were. It had everything to do with, are you willing to trust God on this night? And are you willing to obey Him by following His commands and taking the blood of a perfect lamb and painting it on the door frames of your home. So the story tells us that this is what everyone went and did. 
to the letter, they all went and chose an unblemished lamb, whether it be a sheep or a goat, that was perfect, a one year old, and they ended its life, and then they took its blood, and they painted it on the door frames of their homes, and then they roasted it, and then they ate it. I don't think they were celebrating that night. And then they went into their homes. Another geeky fact, I love sharing these with you guys. Sorry if it bores you, but on, on Sunday I mentioned that the, the same word for the basket that Moses was placed in, filled with pitch and tar, the vessel of salvation through which God would save his people, yes, is the same word for the ark, filled with pitch and tar on the inside, the vessel through which God would save his people. Now, Hebrew, the way Hebrew people write and think of this time is that one of the ways they try and get you to notice certain details is not just the words themselves and their meanings, but also sometimes the way the words look, physically look. And the word into the house has the same letters as the word for the ark, but backwards. And you might say, Stephen, that sounds like a step too far. Think about it. Think about God's people going through the door and shutting the door protected by God's grace. Think about the fact that these homes were a place of safety, both for humans and for animals. Think about the fact that behind these closed doors was God's righteous acts of judgments against evil. And so I think those dots are there to be joined for us that God's people are going to be spared to go and be God's covenant people. Now listen, thinking about what that night felt like, I've had a couple of evenings where I've been inside the closed doors of my house and I've been worried about what's happening out there. As I was preparing today's message, I thought back to that very first hard lockdown where all we knew was this big, bad, evil virus was out there moving across planet Earth leaving death and destruction in its wake. And I just remember being in my home, worried what's going to happen. There's been moments where there's been some severe thunderstorms where I've been worried, is my roof going to even make it tonight? There's also been times where, luckily we've never been home when this has happened, but I've wondered, I've heard a sound, is there someone out there seeking to do us evil here I am in my house and there's all this evil out there. Think about these people. In the darkness of this night, the severity of the moment. Think about moms and dads and brothers and sisters looking at the oldest son in the family, saying that the only thing that stands between this son's life and his death is some blood painted on a doorframe and our obedience and faith. I don't know about you, I think I would have painted the doorframe four times. Maybe the roof for good measure as well. But there was nothing they could do except trust God. Jumping forward to verse 29, at midnight... The Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner 
who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. And that is the first meal that forever changed the course of Egypt and forever changed history for God's people in Israel. For the following roughly one and a half thousand years, faithful Jews continued to remember this night, celebrating Pesach, celebrating the Passover. This idea of God's saving power became so deeply entrenched in their imagination. All of these images defining who they are and defining who God is and what His salvation looks like. One and a half thousand years later, with these images saturating the minds and the hearts of God's people, John the Baptist is baptizing people who are turning back from sin towards God in repentance. And he looks up and he sees his cousin, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, hey, everyone, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have to import this entire story into that single one-liner. Jesus demonstrates who He is throughout His ministry. He gets towards the end of this ministry and He had an evening where He celebrated the Passover with His disciples just like other faithful Jews. But this meal would be a little bit different from all the thousands of other meals that Jews had celebrated for thousands of years. You see, Jesus knew that this was the night that he would be crucified or taken away. This was the night before the full wrath of God's judgment against all the evil of not just the nation, but the entire world would like a lightning rod be centered upon Jesus himself. The disciples kind of knew this in part. Sometimes we give the disciples a hard time. The problem is you and I have 20-20 vision. The disciples knew this in part, but it would take them years, if not decades, to fully understand what transpired that night. You see, sitting among them there in the person of Jesus was the entire story of Exodus in one person. God's patience and God's love and God's justice. God's might and God's power. God's desire to confront evil. God's victory over evil and sin and death. God's strong right saving arm. The lamb who would be slain. The entire story in one person. And so Jesus himself linked the meal from one and a half thousand years ago to the meal of that night. And he says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying there's more to this story that needs to be fulfilled. God is not done. And so this meal that Jesus had with his disciples, 
change the course of history, not just for a nation. You and I are here today celebrating who Jesus is and what happened at that meal, what happened on the cross because of all that was meant by Jesus on this night. And so let's connect some of the dots between this story and this story, between this meal and this meal. You see, in Exodus, while God's people were in physical slavery to a physical nation, you and I may not be slaves in that sense of the word, but the New Testament writers say that we are slaves in a greater, deeper sense to our sin. There is nothing no human has ever been able to do to rid humanity of our frailty, our weakness, our brokenness, our selfishness, our pride, our desire to do the wrong thing, whether out there or in private, or when we do the right thing, our desire to take the glory and be self-righteous about it. No matter how hard we try, there's nothing we can do to get rid of that. We're slaves. In the book of Exodus, just like God confronts evil in Pharaoh and Egypt and the spiritual evil of the time, so on the cross, God confronts the evil of the entire human race. The book of Colossians also tells us that God confronted the spiritual evil behind all of that too. The evil of sin, the evil of death. In the book of Exodus, just like they had to find an unblemished lamb in the height of its life and perfection. So Jesus, at the height of his human strength, 33 years old, was an unblemished human being unblemished from the things that weaken us and pollute us and make us frail. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. Not only by not doing all the bad things that sometimes we find ourselves doing, but He fully obeyed all the positive things God called Him to do. Fully put God first in all things. Fully put God's kingdom and will first in all things. Loving people first Alongside loving God, first in all things, Jesus did that perfectly. I can't make it an hour without failing. And just like in the death of the lamb, none of its bones were to be broken. So in Jesus, despite the fact that when Romans wanted to expedite the death of the people on the cross, they would break that person's leg so that they would asphyxiate and die quicker. With Jesus, when they came to him, they didn't have to do that. And so none of his bones were broken. And so just like in the book of Exodus, it was the death of the lamb in the place of the people. And it was the blood of the lamb that became what covered them and saved them from God's judgments. So in the life and the death of Jesus, it is his blood that we trust there is nothing you and I can do in our own power except trusting His blood. And just like in the book of Exodus, while God in His judgments was still merciful to anyone, regardless of nation or creed, as long as you trust me and trust the blood of this lamb, I will save you. 
So God is patient with us, inviting every single one of us to trust His saving power. But just like God was just in Exodus when He brought that judgment, so the time will come. Where even though God is patient, we're here 2,022 years later. God is patient, desiring that all be saved. The time will come when God will be perfectly just in bringing His final declaration of judgment against all evil. It's got nothing to do with how well you lived your life. It's got everything to do with did you trust God? And did you show and demonstrate that trust in obedience and trusting the blood that was shed on Good Friday those 2,000 years ago? So that was the second meal that changed the world. What about the third meal? Well, I think the third meal has the power to change the world and we'll talk about that in a second. But that's the meal that you and I are gonna share this morning. If you're joining us online, why don't you just quickly run and get some bread and something to drink to celebrate this with us. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11 verses 26, quoting Jesus, for whenever you, now it comes to me and you, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, the death of the lamb until he comes. We've seen various pictures of the disciples eating a meal with Jesus. And in our mind's eye, that happened 2,000 years ago. Well, the mystery of the Lord's Supper for us is that while, yes, we do remember Passover, we do remember what happened in Exodus chapter 12. And yes, we do remember what happened one and a half thousand years later. We do remember the meal that Jesus had with His disciples. We do remember the lamb, the, the, the lamb that was slain on the cross that Good Friday. But we don't only remember. There's this incredible mystery that when we eat this meal, we eat it with the very same Jesus. And we recall God's power and His saving work. And by eating this third meal, we become part of the story. This is why I never ever want us to just go through the motions. If all you're doing is eating a cracker and drinking some juice, nothing happens. If anything, the Bible warns us against just going through the motions. What we're being invited to this morning is just like those Israelites three and a half thousand years ago placed their trust in God by eating a meal and by trusting the blood that was shed by that lamb. So today, as partaking in this table, we are placing our trust in God. Maybe for some of you, it's the 10,000th time. Maybe for some of you, it's the very first time but we are trusting the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. And we eat this meal with Jesus. And that is why this meal has the power to change the world. Because God 
brings us into a new life, into a new existence, an existence of being His people, defined by who He is, His saving power, His presence in us. And so when we look through the pages of history, man, history is scary. When you look at what's happening on planet earth right now, man, that is scary. But God is inviting His people to be a different kind of presence, a different kind of people with a different kind of a hope. So this meal has the power to change the world. So I'm going to invite you, we're going to be playing just something on the screen, a video just to help our attention in this. The music's going to be playing softly. I'm going to invite you. I know we're quite full today. This may take some time, but we've got a table over there, a table over here, there and there. We've got something at the back. Just while you're waiting in the line, we're going to sanitize you and we'll just be as safe as is possible. And once you've taken the cracker representing the bread and the juice, just go back to your seats and hold on to that. And then I'm going to lead us to take the communion elements together. And then we'll end off our time together in worship. So let us do that. Let us respond in faith to God now, together.